educators that I know. Uh, he is a gentleman that I love with all my heart. He has now been my father-in-law for 21 years, so I have broken the family in well. Not only is he my father-in-law, but he was one of the very, very first supporters that helped my church get started and some of the very first givers to help us purchase our land. And so I want you guys to give a real warm welcome to Dr. Ed Heinsohn. Thank you, Jeff. I remember that time about 21 years ago when uh, Christy told me she wanted me to meet her new boyfriend, and I thought, ah, there have been so many. Uh, they come, they go. Uh, well, I put a lot of energy into this. <clears throat> but uh, the first time I looked up and they were in the basketball arena at Liberty University, I saw this guy with this big grin on his face and his eyes all lit up, and I thought, uh-oh, this one's not going away. This guy's here to stay, and uh, we have loved having uh, Jeff as part of our lives all these years. And uh, to have three Murphy grandchildren, that is a wild ride uh, in and of itself. Uh, the stage looks calm compared to their house, but uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing. And last night, Donna and I had the privilege of having our seventh grandchild born in Atlanta. And we'll see him tonight. Don't know his name yet. My son and his wife have this strange habit. They don't name the kid till after he's born. They want to look at him for a while and decide what name fits. Uh, so we're actually going to see that uh, in the Bible this morning because what I want to talk to you about is how can we go from our ordinary life to something super ordinary? How can we go from our own fears and failures and frustrations to guaranteeing a future for your family, not only your children, but ultimately your grandchildren, because the decisions that you and I make today will influence them for generations to come. And uh, I want to take you through a biblical story from Genesis chapter 27 all the way through 35. Now, I'm not going to read all of that verse by verse, but I'm going to tell the story, but we're going to look at significant parts of it. I want to roll back the clock 4,000 years ago into the ancient world. God has called a man named Abram, whose name meant great father, Abram, Abba, father, uh, trust me, believe in me, leave your home, go to the land of Canaan. Now, 4,000 years ago, that would be like telling somebody, go to Arkansas uh, or West Virginia. Uh, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. Uh, and Canaan was not the place most people wanted to move to. But God said to this guy, go there, trust me, and he did it. So his name later got changed from great father to Abraham, the father of a multitude of people. God was going to greatly bless him because of his faith. But it was a journey of faith with a lot of struggles and ups and downs. But ultimately, we remember Abraham as the father of the faith of all of us. Then he has a son named Isaac, whose name literally meant laughter, because God told him in his old age, you'll still have a son of your own. And he said, I'm nearly 100. The old lady's 90. You've got to be kidding. And laughed at God. And God said, you think it's funny? Name the kid funny. Uh, every time you call him for dinner, hey, funny, it's time for dinner. You'll laugh with me, not at me. 
And then Isaac gets married, and he's praying for God to bless his wife, to give them children. And his wife, Rebecca, becomes pregnant with non-identical twins, twin boys, but they don't look alike. Uh, And the first, the eldest, is named Esau, which is the Hebrew word for red, big red. The kid is delivered, and the Bible says he's got a mop of red hair already. Uh, He's hairy all over, uh, like a hairy garment, the Bible says. This is a kid with a lot of testosterone. I picture him as no neck. Uh, He's just a linebacker to be uh, kind of a guy. He'll become dad's favorite, my boy, big red. But then the brother is born, grasping onto Esau's heel in the delivery. It's almost like he's trying to pull him back and say, no, me first. And so they name him Jacob Grasper, uh, manipulator, deceiver, somebody who's always trying to get ahead but never quite gets there. Now, he's going to be our hero ultimately in the story because eventually God will change his name from Jacob Grasper to Israel, a prince with God. A whole nation will be named after him. Uh, King David will descend from him. Jesus will descend from him. But he doesn't start out doing the best. Right off the bat, the story in Genesis 27 says that Isaac favored Esau, the eldest, the toughest, my boy, the, the real player. And Jacob feels rejected. So he clings to his mother for security. He's in the tent learning how to cook while Esau's out on the open field learning how to hunt. Now, one of the challenges in life for all of us as dads is don't play favorites. Uh, It's very easy to prefer one kid over the other, and if you grew up in a home like that, it's no fun. Uh, Isaac makes a big mistake by this. He favors Esau, big red, and Grasper has to learn to fend for himself. Now, I always remind my students at Liberty, there's a challenge here. If God has blessed you with great physical strength, use it to the glory of God. The problem with Esau is he had great strength, but he thought it was all about him and his strength, and he didn't use it to the glory of God. Uh, If you're less than the toughest guy on the block, don't feel like God's rejected you and you don't have a chance. You have to learn to trust God and be the person God wants you to be. There's always going to be somebody bigger and tougher than you, no matter how tough you are. And Jacob is going to have to learn to survive by his wits. As the story unfolds, we're told that there are two significant things in these ancient Middle Eastern families. The eldest born child, the eldest born male, even the eldest born twin will receive these two things. The birthright means that he becomes the leader in the family upon his father's death. Secondly, he gets the blessing, the double portion of his father's inheritance. So it was a big deal in the ancient world to be the eldest born son. You're going to get the birthright and you're going to get the blessing. Now, if you know anything about the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob spends his life playing second to his brother. Uh, And one day, the Bible says that Esau came in from the field, out on the hunt, but he didn't catch anything this time. He's famished. 
Jacob is in the tent making a bowl of red soup, chili, if you will. Uh, and uh, Big Red comes in and says, in essence, Big Red hungry. Big Red need red chili. And Jacob, trying to outwit him, says, I'll tell you what, Big Red, I'll trade you the soup for the birthright. And the Bible says that Esau despised the birthright. That wasn't good. He, he had the opportunity to be the leader, and he did not take it seriously. Somebody gets the opportunity to be the captain, the leader, the commander, gets the opportunity to be the president of the company or whatever. You better take it seriously or you'll lose it. Esau did not take it seriously. His character weakness shows up in the story. He despises the birthright and says, forget it, I'm starving. Give me the bowl of chili. He can have the birthright. I think he thought, I can beat you up anytime I want to, and I can be the leader. But God marked it down. The character flaw would ultimately be Esau's undoing, and God promised that I'll bless the younger son over the elder son. I'll ultimately take care of him. But when we grow up in life, we're still struggling to figure out who we are. Time passes. The father, Isaac, gets old. His eyesight is dim. No glasses in those days. He can't see very well. He's almost what we would call legally blind. He calls in Esau one day and says, go out in the field. Catch me the venison. Make me the great meal that I love so much of the wild game, and I'll give you the blessing. Why? He thinks, I'm liable to die. Before I die, i got to make my will. Your will's verbal in those days. In the meantime, the mother, Rebecca, overhears this conversation, and she thinks, ah, I don't want Big Red to get the blessing. I want Jacob to get the blessing. So she calls in Jacob and says, Jake, we can't let your dad do this. Uh, we got to figure out a way to get the blessing for you. I'll make the venison. I'll prepare it while your brother's gone. You take it in. You feed the old man, and he'll give you the blessing. He can't see well. And Jacob goes, Ma, are you crazy? My brother's this big, hairy dude. Uh, my dad can't see well. He'll reach out and touch my face. I'm a smooth man. Uh, he doesn't shave very much. Uh, and my brother's big and hairy, uh, and he'll curse me instead of blessing me. So the Bible says she tied goat skins on his arms and around his neck. I mean, Esau was one hairy dude. Uh, and uh, sure enough, they deceive the father. He gives Jacob the blessing instead. Now, in our culture, that makes no sense. We just reverse that, but not back then. If you give your word, you have to keep it even if you're tricked into giving it. Jacob now has the birthright, and he's now stolen the blessing by deception. Esau comes back from the hunt, realizes they've all been tricked, and he is so mad. He's stomping around in their family Bedouin tent, and he's shouting out, when the old man dies, I'm going to get Jacob, and I'm going to kill him. Mom overhears this. Ladies, I know it's Father's Day, but there are great lessons in this story. Mind your own business. Uh, she tries to manipulate everything and messes it all up. Uh, she knew God was going to bless him, but she figured, I got to fix it. Now, I know as a mom, you never tried to fix it. Uh, every mom tries to fix it. Uh, and uh, then she has to call Jacob in and say, well, there's a little problem here. Uh, I know I told you to deceive your father, but now your brother wants to 
uh, kill you. Uh, so maybe you should do something real brave like run away. Uh, uh, run north to Haran in Syria where my brother lives. Go stay with your Uncle Laban, one of the worst guys in the whole Bible. Uh, and uh, sure enough, he runs. We pick the story up in Genesis chapter 28, uh, verse 10. He went out from Beersheba, way in the southern part of Canaan, uh, headed north to Haran, came upon a certain place. It was dark. He went to sleep on the edge of a town out in the middle of nowhere, took a big rock and used it for his pillow. And while he was asleep, he has a dream. And it's there that he sees a staircase or a ladder that leads into heaven. And angels are going up and down on the ladder. It's the portal into heaven. And God is standing up there and speaks to him and says, I'm Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, your grandfather, the God of Isaac, your father. But he never says, I'm your God, because he wasn't yet. This is the time when Jacob's going to meet God personally. We would say in a New Testament sense, this is the time Jacob really gets saved. He may have heard about God all of his life, but he did not have a personal relationship with God. God speaks to him and says, even though you're running away from this land, I will bless you. I'll bring you back to this land, and one day this land will belong to your descendants. It'll become the land of Israel. Jacob wakes up and he's stunned, scared to death by this encounter with God. Nevertheless, he sets up a rock for a pillar, an altar of worship. He has no lamb to sacrifice. He takes a cruise of olive oil that he's going to use for his desert journey, pours it on top of the pillar as an act of submission to God and says, if you'll bless me and take care of me, I'll come back to this land. You'll be my God. I'll help build the house of God, and, and, and I'll even give you a tenth of all my money. I'll even tithe. He's met God. He's had an experience with God. I think we can legitimately say it's that night that Jacob is really saved. And then it says this in verse 19. He called the name of that place Bethel. Now, Bethel is a Hebrew word that means the house, Beth of El, the Hebrew word for God, the house of God. Now, there was no building there. There was no church or temple or structure. It was the place where he met God at the house of God. Now, you can get saved anywhere, but most people end up having an encounter with God somewhere in the house of God. And usually, your spiritual life will run parallel to your relationship to that place. Jacob's did. Whenever he was at the house of God, God blessed him greatly. When he got away from it, things went wrong. He meets God. He believes in God. He gives his heart to God. But then he runs. He's still on his way to Syria. He's still on his way to find his uncle. He's still running away from his brother. We see all of the fears that drive his life, and often the fears drive us to failure because they cause us to make the wrong choices. You can be saved. You can know the Lord as your Savior, but that doesn't mean you're a spiritual superman yet. Uh, we may still struggle. We may still need to grow and mature. And Jacob had a long way to go. He got north to Haran. He arrived on the edge of town. He has no clue how to find his uncle. He's never been there. He goes to the well, and when he gets there, the Bible says there's this huge stone 
over the mouth of the well. Probably about the size and circumference of this table, but a lot thicker. And the girls come out to water the sheep, and they can't move the stone off the top of the well. Now, had Esau been there with Jacob, he'd have pushed Jacob out of the way and said, Big red moves, Tom. <laughs> Nothing to it. Hey, girls. But he's not there. So Jacob finally gets a chance to be his own person. He steps up and says, Ladies, don't panic. Grasper here. Uh, he'll move the stone for you. Uh, and all of a sudden, he catches the attention of one girl. It was love at first sight. In fact, he ran right up to her and kissed her. Chapter 29. Verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Started to cry. I don't know if he was disappointed. Uh, she bit him on the lip. He got hung up in her braces. I'm not sure what happened there. Actually, he discovers that she's his cousin, his kissing cousin. Uh, and in those days, they still married their cousins. Uh, and she's like, oh, my dad would like to meet you. Who's your dad? Laban. It's my uncle. Yeah, she takes him home. Uh, he stays for a few days like his mother planned. But his mother didn't plan on him falling in love. Now, Laban, the uncle, remembers years earlier, Abraham sent an entourage of camels loaded down with gold and silver and food and stuff. Uh, and he's thinking, where are the camels? There aren't any. How is my sister and all her money? I mean, her family. Uh, yeah, she's okay. Uh, I'm kind of in love with your daughter, Rachel. Oh, really? Uh, I think maybe I'd like to marry her. Uh, how much money do you have for the dowry? Uh, where are the camels? Uh, I thought I kind of left home in a hurry. Uh, I forgot the checkbook. I don't have a credit card. Uh, I don't have any money. Actually, my brother's trying to kill me. Uh, what? Uh, how long would I have to work to make enough money to pay for this girl? Now, only a guy really in love would make such a stupid agreement. Uh, and uh, the father-in-law says, seven years. You work for seven years for free. Is enough money for a dowry, for a down payment? He doesn't have any sons, so he needs a worker. Jacob is so in love, he agrees. Now, if you know that story, they finally come to the wedding night. It's dark. Uh, Middle Eastern women are in a burqa. You can't tell what's in there. Uh, and uh, the father switches the girls, and he wakes up in the morning, and that's her sister. Uh, I don't want her. I wanted Rachel. He doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God, what do you want me to do? We discover later in the Bible, Leah, the sister, is the ancestor of Jesus. Hello. God tricked a trickster uh, into marrying the right girl, but he doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God. He just decides, I'll marry them both. Uh, and before you're done, 20 years go by while they're in Syria. And after 20 years, he's got four wives and 12 kids, 11 sons and a daughter and another son on the way. And finally, everything's going wrong. He's got money, he's got a herd, he's got cattle, he's got a bunch of kids, he's got a workforce and all these boys, but he and Laban do not get along. And there's no comment as you read these chapters, no reference to him talking to God. So finally, God talks to him. Go to chapter 31, verse 13. Genesis 31, verse 13. God speaks to him and says what? I am the God of what place? Bethel. Remember where you anointed that pillar 20 years ago? 
Remember where you made that vow to me and said, yeah, I'm going to know you and love you and serve you? Jacob, it's time to come home. Get out of this place. Now, the text doesn't say that God told him to go back to Bethel, but I think that's implied clearly in the story. So finally, he picks up all the kids, all the cattle, all the stuff, pull up the tent stakes, roll up the tents, pack up the camels. We're heading back to Canaan. On the way, he's still got this guilty conscience. He's still wrestling in his mind. I stole the blessing. What am I going to do? A messenger comes running up to him and says, Hey, your brother Esau, yeah, he heard you were coming home, and he's coming up to meet you. Great. And he's got 400 men with him. Ah, not so great. Uh, and he panics. Uh, he, he's trying to figure out, oh, he's going to kill me. What am I going to do? Once you've got a guilty conscience, you always assume everything's wrong. When you have a guilty conscience, somebody can say, hi, how you doing? Oh, why are you asking? Uh, you know, I'm just trying to be nice to you, pal. What is your problem? Uh, whatever. That's Jacob. Still got the guilty conscience. And it's that night that he wrestles with the angel. And what does he say to the angel? I will not let you go unless you do what? Bless me. Still got a guilty conscience over stealing the blessing. It doesn't work. God has to tell him, you go face him and I'll take care of it. The chapters unfold and by chapter 33, Esau comes to meet him, runs ahead of the 400 men, runs past the wives, the kids, the cattle, runs right up to Jacob and grabs him. Look at chapter 33, verse 4. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. No, oh, Jake, it's so good to see you, man. 20 years, old big red and Mr. Jake. Then he looks around and he goes, whose stuff is all this stuff? It's mine. Whose kids are all these kids? They're mine. Esau's thinking, man, Jake, I don't know you had it in you, man. Uh, all these kids, wow. Uh, well, I got good news and bad news, Jake. The good news is the old man's still alive. He never did die. Can't see, but he's still around. The bad news is mom's gone. Uh-oh, his protector. Uh, mom manipulated the whole thing and interfered and sent him away. She didn't realize he'd be gone for 20 years. He died before he ever came back. And then Esau says, you know, this stuff's not going to fit in Dad's garage. Uh, you're surely not going to move back in with him, are you? I mean, I moved out a long time ago. Moved out. I got my own country down those red rocks way to the south. I call it Edom. Big red rock country for me. Big Esau. Big red. Why don't you move in with me? Jacob's thinking, I'm not coming anywhere near you. Oh, yeah, okay, you go ahead. Tell your wife we're coming. I'll see you in a little bit. Now, if you could look at the whole story on a Bible map, Jacob was about 10 miles from Bethel, headed south when he encounters Esau. Esau goes further south. Jacob turns around and goes back north several miles. He settles outside of a Canaanite city called Shechem, an ungodly town, a rough town, a tough town. It's full of idolatry. It's full of immorality. And it's there that his kids begin to pick up the idols of the Canaanites, the little gods of the Canaanites in their pockets. It's there that his only daughter, Dinah, is kidnapped and raped. Her brothers get mad and attack the city, kill the men, burn the town down without asking their father's permission. He is horrified by their actions. 
What have you idiots done? All the Canaanites are going to gang up and kill us all. We're all going to die. Oh, God, everything is against me. Ever feel that way? And then God had to speak and say, no, actually, I'm still for you, pal. Go to chapter 35, the end of our story, the 35th chapter, verse 1. And God said to Jacob, get up, go up to where? Bethel. You might circle it in your Bible or on your phone. Go back to Bethel, Jacob. Go back to the house of God. Go back to where you met me in the first place. You've been off the track, man, for over 20 years. It's time to come back. And this time he took God seriously, really seriously. In verse 2, he got all the kids together and said, all right, straighten up. Give me all those idols. Give me all those strange gods. Change your clothes. Straighten up. Give me your earrings. Sounds like checking at liberty. Uh, these were actually a cultic earring by which people then worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. Give me all that junk. And he buried it in the ground. Here's the problem. When dad gets right with God early in life, you have a chance to shape your children. But when you wait till later, it's not going to be easy. When a middle-aged dad gets right with God, the tendency is to want your whole family to straighten out in five minutes. And they're thinking, you've been a jerk for 50 years. You finally came to the Lord, and you want us to straighten out in the next five minutes, and you're throwing all my cool stuff away? Ah, uh, what in the world? And they're going to test you to see if it's real. His kids did. It's going to be a long time before the older boys straighten out. The youngest one at this point was Joseph. The guy with the coat of many colors later, the guy who ends up saving the whole family eventually, the guy who emerges as the most spiritual one of all. Why? He was a little kid. Dad said we should all get right with God. Shut up. Ah, uh, no, I think we should do it. He did it. It changed his life. They nearly ruined their lives. God had to continue to intervene. Here's my point. If it took you a long time to come to the Lord, you don't have a lot of time left. When you're a parent, you've got about 15 to 20 years max, and it's all over. You've got a narrow window of time in which God can use you as an example to shape your children for the next generation. And it's not just about your kids, it's about your grandkids. It's about generation after generation. Are we going to see that difference for God? I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I've told some of you that story before. My, my parents didn't know God from a goat. Uh, they, there was no God, no Jesus, no Bible, nothing in our home. My dad was a truck driver. He was an honest, hardworking guy, but he didn't know the Lord at all. Nobody in his family did. Nobody in my mother's family did. My paternal grandfathers died at 39 and 42. They smoked a lot. They drank a lot. They lived hard, and they died early. And every one of them left no heritage to his family. Nothing. The women had to try to scramble around to pull it together. My grandmothers were dead by 52 and 60. None of them were saved. None of them. So how in the world did you come to Christ? Vacation Bible school. My mother sent me. Uh, some church near our house sent out a flyer for vacation Bible school for little kids. And my mother was like, go to that. That'll be good for you. 
I went there and learned that Jesus loved me, died for my sins, rose from the dead and could change my life, and I could go to heaven and it was free. I thought, I'm in. That's easy. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good deal. I'm for that. But at that moment, you've got to come to know him, then you've got to grow. See, Jacob had to get over his fears, his failures, and change his future. And the change comes in this chapter. But what's interesting to me is, even though he takes a stand and demands that the entire family follow his leadership, he did something interesting. In chapter 35, verse 7, he built an altar, a place of worship, and he called the place this time El Bethel. El, the word for God, Beth, the word for house. This time he called it the God of the house of God. He was trying to make it clear to the family, we're not just going back to a place. We're not just going to go to church. We're not just going back to the house of God. We're going back to the God of the house of God. We're going back to God. And once he made that choice, God began to change the future for this family. It was not an easy process because he almost waited too long. You and I have to face those same challenges in our life. On a Father's Day, we've got to ask ourselves, where am I spiritually on the road of life? Maybe it's time that some of us said, it's time for me to say, yes, I need to have a Bethel House of God experience. I need to come to faith. I need to stop letting my wife push all this all the time and try to deal with it. I need to be the leader in our family. I need to say yes to Jesus. I believe you are who you said you were. You can do what you said you can do. Come into my heart and life and become my Lord and Savior. And then many of us who've made that decision, as we struggle along to mature and grow, and we all do, have to come to a point of saying, at the most crucial point, go back to the God of the house of God, go back to the altar. I need to lead my family in what? Worship. Not just depend on the church to do it for me. We need to pray together as a family. We need to read the Bible. We need to talk about the things of God as a family. We need a spiritual atmosphere in our home where there is, in a sense, an altar in our home where we also acknowledge what? The God of the house of God. Once Jacob did that, everything began to change. It doesn't automatically change overnight, but a process begins that sets you on the road to success and the road to victory. I look around at my grandkids, and, and when you got Murphy grandkids, they're wild. Ah, uh, they got these wild genes in them. But when they get saved, it's amazing. God starts to change all of that and direct all of that for the future. It wasn't just about Donna and I and our two girls and our son. It's about those seven grandchildren we now have. Uh, it's about Heinzen grandkids and Barrett grandkids and Murphy grandkids, and it's about their kids. It's about deciding that I'm not going to let the world shape my kids. I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the dad God wants me to be. I'm going to overcome my fears, my failures, and I'm going to do something about the future that's going to make a difference for time and ultimately for eternity. And all the moms and wives said, amen. And all the real men said, amen. So be it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give each one of us as dads an understanding of what it means 
to be men who know how to love you, love our wives, love our kids, how to pray, how to even pray out loud with them so the family sees that we're men who worship God and who know Him. And Lord, this morning, I want to pray for all of our dads that you might do a wonderful work in their lives. And so I'm going to ask all the dads here again this morning, would you stand up right now? And I want to pray for you, especially. This summer, Don and I will celebrate our 48th anniversary. It hasn't always been easy, but it's always been wonderful. Because God is God, and God can meet your needs. Father, I want to pray for each one of these guys that you might do a wonderful, deep, and powerful work spiritually in their lives. Give them the grace to know you, the determination to really live for you, and whatever choices and decisions they need to be making right now that will make a difference in their family in the years to come. Help each one to make the right choices and the right decisions. Bless them overwhelmingly, abundantly, because we all are Jacobs who need to become an Israel, a prince with God. And so I pray, make these men a prince in their own home who under the authority of the king, Christ himself, give the kind of direction their family needs. But we pray in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. Let's stand together.